Welcome back. Tuesday, June 29th, 2021, as we head into hour two. Um, it's your hour, uh, 602-508-0960. Anything you'd like to uh, bring up, happy to uh, to discuss with you. One of the things I did want to bring out today, it's smart, it's fun, and it's funny. Um Steve Hayward, who uh, is one of the uh, four Powerline uh, uh, co-writers, uh, one of the four Powerline bloggers, um, he just, as he wrote this morning, finished a book about uh, one of the um, leading conservatives in the modern conservative movement, uh, Stan Evans, formerly known as M. Stanton Evans. I have friends uh, in this audience I know who will remember Stan and his work. I have a friend, Steve, I'm sure remembers Stan and his work. Uh, Stan is, um, has passed away, but he was an uh, editorial page writer for um, a, a local newspaper. Was it St. Louis Post? I don't remember off the top of my head. But then he went on uh, to become a national syndicated columnist and founded a journalism teaching center in Washington, D.C. You will find a lot of conservative journalists came out of M. Stanton Evans, Stan Evans uh, uh, seminars, uh, uh, fellowships. Um, Steve Hayward just wrote a book on him, and um, he recalled that Stan Evan had six rules for political combat. And I was thinking about that in the context of how we're often talking about the left's interest and adoption of the rules for political combat by the likes of Saul Alinsky in his book Rules for Radicals or his follow-up Reveille for radicals. Um, so let's let's look at Stan's six rules. And and if you have more that you'd like to add, I bet I do. Um, let's let's talk about them, because while we're in this business of trying to win back the Congress, of course, the Senate and ultimately the presidency, keep our state houses and improve on them. While we're doing all this and, and, and responding to the left, it's quite right when we read, although it is quite hard, that it would be best if we were not always responding, but having them respond to us. The fact that there's not a lot we have out there for them to respond to is resultant from two things. Is caught, yeah, is the result of two things. One is the fact that it's harder when you're in the minority. You can't hold your hearings. You can't convene hearings. Um, you don't have the kind of power you have in the majority control the agenda and the legislation. That's one. And the other is a lack, frankly, of ideological conservative leadership. Uh, I can't fault – don't mean to make myself unpopular with y'all. I can't fault Kevin McCarthy for too terribly many specifics. Overall, however, I don't have an agenda setting speaker of the House or leader of the Republican Party in him. 
Some will say, well, maybe he's not the leader of the Republican Party. Maybe Donald Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. He might very well be. I think right now, if you have someone who's doing things that the left has to respond to and finds itself going mad responding to, you have to pretty much put your finger on Ron DeSantis as the one who sets agendas and is getting people to talk about him rather than talking about the left and responding to them. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's amazing we haven't given all of that interest in setting the agenda, promoting rather than responding, um, and having our own set of rules we're responding to theirs. So when I'm looking for our sets of rules, for our guidelines, it's a funny thing. You just there's just not a lot there's not a lot of conservatives who have written books or have suggested them. Breitbart, I think, might have been one. David Horowitz might have been another. Stan Evans that Steve Hayward brought out with his six political rules. Let me give them to you. Tell me if you have additions to them. One, politics abhors a vacuum. Do you know where that comes from, by the way? Spinoza. Anyway, politics abhors a vacuum. Conservatives too often wait merely to oppose a liberal proposal, which leaves the initiative always in the hands of liberals. It is important to beat liberals to the lead. You bet it is. Let's, let's start promoting conservative ideas and stop responding to liberal ones. Two, write the resolved clause. One secret of winning a debate is to, is to decide up front what it is going to be about. Liberals seem to know this instinctively. Conservatives all too often don't, which means they wind up discussing what solutions to adopt or not to problems that the liberals have selected. This permits the left to maintain the rhetorical offensive, define the scope of possible action, and wind up getting much of what they want. Conservatives must avoid the trap of simply debating issues as the left presents them and instead define the issues for themselves. Three, nothing is inevitable. It's one of the oldest verbal conceptual tricks in the liberal handbook. Usually what is called inevitable in Washington is something leftward activists or beltway pundits assume or want, thus encouraging their cadres while demoralizing their opponents. Conservatives should resist this dismal counsel wherever it is offered, remembering that by their own exertions and advocacy, they can change the dynamics of most political solutions and often have done so. I'm trying to think of the last time we did in a massively successful way outside of the first-term presidency of Donald Trump. And I happen to think it was probably the high-water year of 1996, 95-96, when the Republican Gingrich Congress was able to push welfare reform and ultimately, finally, after three efforts, getting William Jefferson Clinton to sign it. That may have been our last agenda-setting item outside of the Trump administration, which itself, not a fault, just out of necessity, which itself was not in the business, 
so much of setting agendas in the sense that Reagan's presidency was, but more interested and involved, again, perhaps out of necessity and perfectly justifiable, in undoing what the left had created over eight years. A tough task, a thankless task. Uh, Rule five, Washington is not America. Republicans, for the most part, come to D.C. repeating this mantra to themselves. But once more, there seems to be a memory problem. The enveloping atmosphere of the city, the hugeness of government itself, the clamorous interest groups, the TV talking heads, all of this is hard to ignore or overcome. In these precincts, many liberals are regarded as a done deal, something no sustained or decent person could oppose. Opinion surveys often reveal, however, that things look quite different outside the Beltway, especially after the opposition finally starts to oppose. And finally, taxes are Trump's. As all of the as all of the above suggests, the question of high and rising taxes remains what it has ever been, the gold standard of Republican issues. This is the great Trump card of the GOP. A solid, powerful, and intelligible topic that can place, be placed over and against all the standard liberal promises of something for nothing from the federal larder. Whenever the GOP has been able to use this issue in credible fashion, most notably under Ronald Reagan, it has emerged the winner. Whether it strays from the anti-tax position, as under George H.W. Bush, whenever it does that, it gets into trouble. It all seems pretty obvious stuff. But given the powerful forces arrayed against us, it's probably a good time to repeat, if not rethink, those six rules of political combat. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John is in Phoenix. Hello, John. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm interested in talking about um, censorship of the public. Okay. So when people sign up for social media, uh, they're they're censoring their ideas. They're kicking them off the platform if they don't like what they say. They made it clear what their positions are and why they're doing it, and there's no question um, that they have an objective and at the, the bottom line is that's, that's on american so if if you believe in the bill of rights and free speech the first amendment it's un-american to censor a person so they've made their position clear so why do people participate on those platforms well a couple reasons uh one is the platforms themselves have done such a good job of making a certain perceived necessity of themselves that you don't want to I, – I think a lot of people don't want to leave what they get that's good from Facebook or Twitter, let's say, for two examples. So, for example, right. Twitter has – a lot of people use these things for different reasons, right? Some for politics, some for business, some for any number of things. And 
you can set up a Twitter account, for example, that does a really good job of giving you, you know, the news uh, that you you are interested in, topics you're interested in, writers. You're, it's harder to do that. So to walk away from Twitter, in some cases, for some people, it might, you know, be a case of removing them from the ability to. Uh, you know, read what they usually like to read and see. So I just think people have become dependent on a lot of these things. Now, was there life before Twitter? Of course, of course. So it's just about weaning people off and telling them that their participation, I suppose, um, is helping to propel the problem. That's certainly one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to continue to try and embarrass them and through such embarrassment and public shame of their un-Americanism, to use your word, John, uh, regulate and ideally reform them. I suppose that's the possibility. There are other things out there. None of them I have witnessed and seen or used that are as good as the originals. Have you found otherwise? Well, I do think that they are kicking people off and that's forcing them to find alternatives. I think that's organically going to result in viable alternatives, even if they did not exist previously. So maybe that's the direction this is going. Uh, but it seems like people are willingly staying on a platform that they know is contrary to their ideals, and that is what is the most confounding part of this. Yeah, I know. It's it it is it, it you're raising you're raising an interestingly tough issue, John, because there's no getting around the fact, and I think it is a fact that Facebook and Twitter are the two most popular and most important realms or institutions of political conversation in America. I think that's probably true. I don't know where else it would be more true. And I suppose some people think to take themselves or remove themselves from it um, is to make them have less, less access to political discussion, political thought, both in reading and in distribution of their own thoughts. My guess is, you tell me, this, uh, this is uh, – kind of an interesting thought experiment. My guess is if Twitter begrudgingly and Facebook begrudgingly, uh, let's say, uh, rescinded their ban on Donald Trump, do you think Donald Trump would go back on Facebook and Twitter? My guess is yes. I could be wrong, but it plays out your question. I could be wrong. I'm not certain he would. I could be wrong. You think he wouldn't, right? No, I don't think he would. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. See, I my yeah. sense is people want the access to as big an audience as possible, and they want to receive information from as big an audience as possible. And that principle, um, princi- principle removal of yourself from something you disagree with um, is, is, is probably secondary to that. It, 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 it's, it's kind of a question about boycotting in general and why conservatives have not generally succeeded in boycotting products. I don't know why that is. I don't know why. Can I think of an example? There's probably one or two out there. But can I think of an example 
of a conservative rallying cry and threat of boycott that has changed a corporate American decision? I, there probably is one or two out there, but they don't come yeah. to mind the way that the liberals could put up an entire tote board of ways they have changed right. corporations, right? Um, yeah. we're, we're not – I don't know what it is about us. We, we just don't – we don't play well in that arena. We're focused on other things. Politics to us isn't a religion. I don't know, John. What's your sense? I think people are, are changing. I think people are going to draw a line, and I think they're going to not play by rules they do not agree with. I mean, this is becoming a question of morality, becoming a question of bill of rights, the basic rights of a human, and I think that's where people draw the line. So it, it's starting to get because I do think that, that society will form alternatives, either, either through legislation, maybe they'll rescind some of the Section 230 protections right. or, or whatnot, right. but right. yeah, I, I think it is coming down to a question of, you know, people having to, to gut check themselves. Well, I think you're right about the, the mood and the, and the size of it. I think it's grown. I think you're absolutely right about that. I do remember when, gosh, when would this have been, John? What was your... Do you remember early on there was a huge rush to join Parler? Was that around January? Yeah. Was it? Does yeah, January Parler, sound right? A couple of others. Something like that. Um, and there were some others. And what happened yeah. was they weren't, in my sense, I don't mean to cast aspersions on these well-meaning companies, but in my sense, they weren't quite ready for prime time. Right. They were very clunky. And, 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 some, and it's hard to get people to go yes. back after an initial bad visit, right? I think that's part of it, too. Yeah, and so, some of them got were actually banned by their. By That's their right hosts. too. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Apple took their their servers down. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And Amazon. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, did I say Apple? I meant Amazon. I'm sorry. Amazon. Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. Yeah. You're you're right about yeah. that, John. And 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 that might have been a moment at which you could have seen a permanent exodus. And you're right. Maybe some of these will bring on more. It is interesting. You are seeing a few, a few of these places getting a little bit more attention and a little bit more use. Uh, Newsmax is a good example. You know, Sebastian has taken himself, for example, as, as one, he has taken himself out of the uh, ability to be on Fox. He cannot speak on Fox because he's trying to promote a competitor. Newsmax, and that's a pretty big inroad they're making over at Newsmax. Um, I don't know if they'll ever be quite as big. They might be. But once in a while, if you do it right, you can do it. Can I admit to a problem I have? share an intimate moment with you in the audience. Um, inexplicably, for the past three or four months, no exaggeration, I have woken up with that song in my head, and I can't figure out why. What do I do? How do you get... I think it's called an earworm. I th Is it called an earworm? There's a... I cannot get that song out of my head. It's a it's an okay Jimmy Buffett song. It's a good Jimmy Buffett song. 
But of all the Jimmy Buffett songs, of all the songs in the world, why that one is in my head every morning for three months, I have no idea. That's longer than I've ever heard it. Happen. Yeah. It's like the guy who couldn't recover from hiccups. This is chronic earworm. Yeah. It's chronic, borderline, bordering on acute. If anyone has an idea, do I have to sit there and sing the song? Do I have to perform it at karaoke? Do I have to listen to it and a cover of it? I am desperate because it's a great song, but it's enough. Havana Daydreaming is the song we're talking about. Have, our, have, uh, have John look at the lyrics and see if there's anything in there that he thinks is what, what, what's permanently grabbing me. Uh, Rob writes, we always see and hear of the squad, AOC, um, uh, Ilan Omar, Talib, Alyssa Presley, all very new and junior who get all the media coverage. But why isn't there a Republican squad of equivalent young new fighters who can push back asking for a friend? Fair, fair, fair question. They will never be as credible, creditable or quote unquote uh, sexy to the journalists because they are not liked by them. But if you think about it over the past uh, equal amount of time since the squad, maybe two years before the squad came to came to fruition um we have had our group they're just you're right they're not as young but they're not that much older uh jim jordan congressman from ohio who has done yeoman's work battling the squad um andy biggs and the folks at the freedom caucus um and 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 certainly a whole host of others including the new chair from New York of the Republican House Conference, uh, Elise Stefanik. Um, so, and 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 then you know, I, I I can certainly mention other congressmen. I can certainly mention governors. Look how young Christy Noem and Ron DeSantis are. Um, look at uh, look at look at I look at um, uh, look at how how young. The, um, the 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 contingent of 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 new Republicans running for Congress under the Republican banner has been particularly in the minority community, particularly in the minority community. So they're never gonna they're never gonna get as much attention. If I were a cynic, I would say perhaps the attention. Is because they're they're avowed socialists, and we've never celebrated socialist lawmakers in America before. But I don't think it's quite right because I think the journalists themselves are socialists for the most part, who give them positive coverage and cover for them, and cover for them. Were there not a whole host of financial and other scandals, election law scandals, involving Ill Ilan Omar last year. Whatever happened to those? Those just poof, go away. Were there not nine women who had credibly accused the governor of New York of sexual harassment and not political opponents, but people of his own party? Whatever happened to that? Do these things just not matter? Or... Is the media that powerful that if they don't cover it, it doesn't happen? 
I suppose, like the airstrikes Joe Biden authorized in Syria, in Iraq, over the last 72 hours. It turns out, piggybacking off listener caller John's earlier call, the media does still have a great deal of importance, even though it is held in very low esteem here. How low? Remarkably low compared to other countries. Uniquely low. Deservedly low. And I'll show you with statistics and a new research study. More about that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Abraham Lincoln, I think famously, I've seen this, uh, uh, I've used it, I've seen it used a lot, once said that I stand with anybody that stands right and stand with him while he was right and part with him when he goes wrong. I want to apply that today to Megan McCain, who I know is not always everyone's favorite conservative or Republican, but when she's good, she can be great. And in front of five, not liberal, left-wing women and an entire left-wing audience on ABC, she said this today, and I just think she deserves another listen. I think in regards to the athlete protesting, I've spent the last year and a half hearing every argument possible and understanding why athletes protest in the United States of America, like Colin Kaepernick. The problem I have is this woman is doing this internationally. And if anyone just saw Vladimir Putin's recent uh, speech when he met with President Biden, he's using the propaganda that America is an irredeemable crap hole against us, saying you think your country's so great over there? Look at BLM. Look at everything that's happening in your country. You don't even treat your people correctly. At the same time where he's literally imprisoning people and we're having our enemies and propagandic dictators using our own propaganda against us, which in turn turns into a real national security rest. My other problem with this is I don't understand why we all can't have shared experiences in this space or have our own stories because for some reason my relationship with the flag isn't allowed anymore. My love of, of the American flag, my love of the national anthem. And I know that it's very triggering for people and people get very upset when I talk about my dad for whatever reason, which is why I've really stopped doing it on the show unless it's really meaningful to me. But when I was growing up, every year on Christmas, he would tell me a story about when he was in prison being tortured and his cellmate, a man named Mike Christian, had sewn the American flag using scraps of material he found in prison into his prison garden. Every morning, they would say this, the Pledge of Allegiance to what was sewn into his prison garb. One day, the Vietnamese captors found that and beat the living crap out of Mike Christian to the point that his eyes and his body was so badly injured that he could barely move. And the second that he was able to move again, 
Do you want to know the first thing Mike Christian started doing? He started re-sewing the American flag into his prison garb so his cellmates could say the Pledge of Allegiance and remember what they were doing and what they were fighting for in prison for America. So excuse me if I don't think some of these athletes are representing America in the same way. And for some of us, I will die for this. I will die on this hill that it is not appropriate or patriotic to go to a foreign country where you're supposed to be representing America and act like it's just about you. It's not about you. It's about all of us. I think that she is getting to something that I was trying to get at in my monologue. You don't have to have served, obviously, in the military or serve in the military to love your country or be considered patriotic or stand for the national anthem. There's a pretty good example. She's never served in the military. I'd like to think I love this country and I'm as good a patriot as anyone who hasn't worn the uniform of this country. But there is a growing divide, an increasingly growing divide, I was trying to get at this, having to do with how people really do think of this country and flag given the sacrifices they have made for it. And there are, very, there are many ways to do it. L- certain legal immigrants, obviously, who leave everything behind them, that's a certain sacrifice. That's a certain sacrifice to help come here and contribute to this country. I've always loved the notion that Peter Schramm said his father told him when he asked him why we're leaving Hungary for this place called America. And his dad said, because we were born American, just in the wrong country. That's a sacrifice. Obviously, wearing the uniform is a sacrifice. But that story of Mike Christian and thousands of other stories about it mean absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing to the progressives and the Gwen Berries who don't take into consideration at all for a second what the implications and messages they are sending to those that have been tortured and fallen in defense of that flag and what their families have been through. I, I, I tend to think that there's a scale of moral balance in our world, in our lives. I, I, I recognize perfectly well maybe not everyone thinks that way. But can, have, we, have we moved so far in our culture to think that if you assume a scale with two sides – is weighing someone like a Mike Christian versus someone like a Gwen Berry and what they've done for their country? Which side is going to have the heavier, the heft? What side is going to have the moral heft? Have we moved so far that we cannot see the distinction between those things? Um. One of the one of the sad things to me, one of the sad things to me is that the culture will reward and defend that trampling and trampling 
upon the American flag. News organizations had no problem, no problem involving themselves with a progressive leftist protester on January 6th who doesn't fit the narrative of being a Trump supporter, founded an organization whose website you click on, the first thing you see is the American flag burning. When, 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 you, when you take the position you take as a member of the U.S. athletic team, that the national anthem has never spoken to you, as Gwen Berry says, and that you're not there to represent the United States, but represent victims of systemic racism. When you say that, when you say that, it makes me want to ask why you signed up to do any of this in the first place, unless it was some kind of long-term plan to embarrass your country on the world stage. There are worse crimes. I don't mean to be blue-nosed about this or make a bigger thing of it than it is, but in trying to illustrate the change in this country from something like 1968, where the athletes were suspended, to today, where they're worshipped and given Victoria's Secret, Puma, Nike, and other endorsements, Subway Sandwiches endorsements, it illustrates a change. And why do I care about the change? I'll tell you why. It's not because it happened. It happened. That any idiot can recognize. The concern I have is, given that change, is our ability to take back the culture that much the more hampered. We don't have a lot of auxiliaries and allies with us right now. But there is a silver lining I'll tell you about when we come back. William Rehnquist, in a dissent a few years back, was talking about the kind of thing I'm trying to do my best to communicate, which is what I think people totally divorced from this country's history and culture of, um, of, uh, of support for it, regardless of, of, uh, of who the president is and what party he is. Um, William Rehnquist did his best to explain what it means to people in normal times. The flag symbolizes the nation in peace as well as in war. It signifies our national presence on battleships, airplanes, military installations, and public buildings from the United States Capitol to the thousands of county courthouses and city halls throughout the country. Two flags are prominently placed in the Supreme Court. Countless flags are placed by the graves of loved ones each year on what was first called Decoration Day and is now called Memorial Day. The flag is traditionally placed on the casket of deceased members of the armed forces, and it is later given to the decedent's family, deceased's family. Congress has provided the flag be flown at half-staff upon the death of a president or vice president and other government officials, quote, as a mark of respect to their memory, as it puts it in the U.S. Code. The flag identifies United States merchant ships and the laws of the Union protect our commerce wherever the flag of the country may float. No other symbol, no other American symbol has been as universally honored as the flag. And so it just makes me think that our separation from that 
and the notion that it doesn't mean much and it's never been important to you, uh, keep it to yourself. If you don't think what I just read matters, not only to the people involved, but to your fellow countrymen, I'm going to tell you something. There's only one reason Americans are rooting for you in the Olympics. There's really only one reason. Do you know why? It's because you're ours. And you represent us. And we've put us into you and we're proud that you have excelled at such a level as to represent us. And you've turned around and taken that opportunity to kick everyone who thinks those things important in the teeth. In the teeth. There's no heroism here. And I'm sorry, but it is not this junk idea of dissent being the most popular form of patriotism. Not here, not now, not on this. Not on this. And I'm with Megan. I just am. Till my dying breath, I'm going to talk like this because of better men than myself who suffered and died for that thing that I just don't think that hard to stand for and respect.